clay is fashioned into vessels, but it is their empty hollowness that their use depends. Wow, that's it. Welcome to Warfare Advancement and Revisionism. My name is Preston Floyd, and as always, I am your host. I'd like to thank everyone who's continued to listen so far, and I hope you continue to do so. So last week's episode, we covered Southeast Asia, or at least mainland Southeast Asia. This week, we're going to go a little bit further to the north and the east, up into what is modern-day China, Korea, and then, of course, off the coasts of those two locations, into Japan and the Ryukyu Islands, as well as Taiwan. But before we do that, I do have a little bit of feedback I wanted to get into. Uh, so this actually, the first bit goes back to the episode prior to the week prior from last week, the one in India. Uh, someone had asked, uh, I had mentioned that some of those tribal groups, uh, specifically the Adamanese, never had written language until recently, and they asked what I meant by recently, and I should have been clearer than, uh, on that point. Um, but again, depending on the group, that's a different answer. Um, some well after uh, the Europeans arrived, or at least the, the French and the English arrived. Um, I think there are a few late adopters of script at that point, um, but some of them did not even have a writing system up until I believe the 50s or 60s, uh, the 1950s or 60s. So again, there's very wide time frame on that, and we'll get into why that never developed in, in future episodes. Um, but I do want to thank uh, our listener for that little question and clarification. It is something I should have been a little bit clearer on. Uh, the other bit of feedback comes from someone asking uh, why I didn't go over um, the islands of Southeast Asia. Of course, there's a large number of those around uh, you know, the Philippines, Papua New Guinea, all that type of locations. Um, I will be getting into those. Uh, I decided to include them with um, the episode on Australia uh, because otherwise that Australian episode is just going to be very short uh, and it may even only even including those islands it may only be a one episode type deal so um, that's that's why uh, but as we'll get into when we talk about Taiwan in this episode um, Taiwan and those places are linked, or at least they will be linked a little bit closer uh, coming up in the near future, quote-unquote. So, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and focus on the meat of this episode, of course, and that's going to be uh, what is today uh, China. So, now... We, of course, we have the standard mode of human living uh, at this time, 2000 BC, which is still hunting and gathering. And, of course, China, a uh, very large location, uh, but there are a number of regions in that area uh, that are ideal for that type of lifestyle. Uh, depending on how you organize things, China, hit, China has anywhere between three to seven really massive river systems with numerous lakes between and around those systems. Um, and any of these river systems would feature a wide variety of plants and animals surrounding them, which of course draws in humans. 
Um, and, if, you know, there is no telling how many small groups of humans were living in and around these river systems, migrating between them, uh, spreading through them, uh, traveling back and forth. Any and all of them would have played, well, most of all of them would play excellent locations to live for a, you know, a period of time. But the most important of these rivers, uh, or the river system, is the Yangtze, or this is officially referred to in China today as uh, the Shangjiang. And if you're wondering about the discrepancy in the name, uh, Yangtze is derived from the name for an old um, feudal domain during the imperial periods of China. Yang is the name of the domain. And most European and Western countries still display this name on maps, especially, you know, maps from a couple of decades back. Um, internally, China refers it, to it by Changjiang, which means literally the Long River. Uh, of course, it, you know, it has other, you know, internal names living there. Some people, um, you know, depending on the dialect of Chinese, um, some people refer to it as the Dajiang, which just means Great River, or just Jiang, the river. Um, and it is uh, it is the third longest river in the world, and it's the longest in China. And um, you know, that's uh, you know, it's, it's very important for that should make it sound you know that should give you an idea of how important it's going to be to the to the region. And all and the Changjiang and all these river systems. Uh, have led to numerous canyons and gorges, uh, and it shouldn't come as a you know, surprise that these caves and canyons and areas are, you know, there there were decent locations for uh, early human settlements um, or resting places. Uh, they may have only been occupied temporarily. In fact, most of them were just occupied probably seasonally or migrationally. Um, so. And of course, uh, fishing is an excellent supplement to hunting and gathering, which um, most of these areas in East Asia uh, are going to be uh, very reliant in the future uh, to for fish to supplement different diets. Um, now we talked about the three agent system quite a while back. Uh, you know, dividing uh, time into the Stone um, Stone Age. Uh, Bronze Age, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and how that's changed over time and, you know, things break down to, like, pre-pottery periods. Um, in China, uh, or in East Asia in general, not just China, uh, pottery is much older than it is in the um, West, or at least in Western Asia. Uh, they have been using pots in this region uh, since... Uh, 20,000 years ago, I believe. Uh, there is a cave in um, along the Yangtze River um, known as Jean Rindong Cave. Uh, there were numerous potsherds found there uh, a few decades ago, and they have been dated to around 20,000 years old. Uh, so they are in the pre pottery stages uh, well before, um, or They've been in the pottery stages, I should say, uh, while you know the Middle East is still in the pre-pottery Neolithic area. Um, 
Now, what these pots were used for um, wasn't known for a little while because they didn't do a chemical analysis until fairly recently. I think they did a few different tests and they found, um, they did a lipid test and they found fat residue. And essentially, uh, these pots are used mostly for cooking or for um, storage of water. Uh, they're flat bottomed, or they were flat bottomed. They're, that's how they've been reconstructed. So they could sit essentially in a fire and cook that way. Um, and what they cooked depend on the region and availability. Um, I think in John Rendong specifically, they found a lot of uh, fish lipids and fat. Um, so yeah, they were probably getting a lot of their meals directly um, from fish. Um, but there were some areas that had um, some type of deer or ungulate, uh, maybe wild goats, possibly wild cattle, um, that were cooked as well. And you see various um, different pottery locations all along, not just in China, but uh, further north into what is now Russia and the Mongolian steppe. Uh, along several rivers there and they of course you know they feature a little bit more heavily on the deer diet um, we don't really have a name for uh, this this early pottery culture uh, it's kind of isolated I think um, from other areas uh, this type of pottery doesn't show up um, around the area and later you know later pottery that's similar in China is a, is much younger uh, it's, it's much more recent um, so you know is this just the earliest we found uh, probably well obviously it's the earliest we found but is this the first example is this the first location this type of pottery was used or is this just the earliest that we found I should say so uh, it's certainly possible that this is the region that pottery was developed um, in, in Asia. Uh, and it is also possible that it was one of the other rivers or tributaries in China. And then that got spread you know, further south or further north. Uh, and this is just the first thing that was you know, not destroyed. Because those shards in Jianrendong Cave, um, you know, they were they were very heavily destroyed. Uh, the reconstruction work on these is, I'm sure, very very painstaking. Um, but you know they, they they have been verified. They have been uh, tested uh, by a number of different sources. But everything, as far as I can tell, everyone is very you know sure that the date on these is accurate. Um, the oh also the name of the cave Jean Ren, uh, which is is the name and Jean Dong, it means cave in China, so Jean Ren cave in English is fine. Uh, but the name actually comes from uh, Taoist mythology. Um, hits the quote at the start of this episode. I figured I'd use a quote from uh, Wild Z. Uh, but uh, essentially, uh, Jean is used, um, it's used in a few different ways in the language. Um, it refers to kind of like a group of uh, sages, uh, for lack of a better term. And it could also mean a few different things. It's not just, oh, hold on one moment, I'll pause the episode. All right, those fire trucks are gone. So yes, uh, Jean can mean a few different things. 
Um, in this case, it's probably used closer to the definition for sage or uh, uh, shaman or enlightened person. Uh, it can also be used for things like um, uh, in in immortal or possibly like a like a um, a spirit like a you know like a puckish uh, spirit things like um, uh, fairies or um, nymphs things like that um, and we'll get into we'll actually go into some specific myths on that when we get to a little bit further along in the historical timeline uh, when I guess the Chinese mythology kind of comes about it, the Jianren uh, name comes much later it comes from the people who found the cave so uh, that's kind of the origin of the place name but again uh, most of the river systems in China would be occupied at some time or another by various groups uh, there is no one large monoculture um, there is a certain level of continuity between tools in the region but there's not like a specific area that those are recognized to have emerged in um, so there's no there's no kind of like central homeland uh, for this culture um, but that being said um, the culture in China at 10,000 BC China is becoming a little bit more um, uh, populated I think uh, it, it's gonna start to see especially once agricultural takes like full charge um, it's gonna become much more populated um, but I think also by 10,000 BC with the climate change the area is much was probably much more tropical than it is today um, there's still some tropics out towards the west and south in China but uh, those were probably a little bit more widespread so it it probably kept people from moving into or out of the region a little bit better also um, with the um, the weather at some point uh, Taiwan which is the next area we're going to study here uh, was connected very briefly to the mainland via um, via a land bridge uh, that has probably been uh, cyclical um, or at least it has been exposed at various parts um, you know various different times when um, when uh, the climate changes uh, and it gets uh, colder you know once the um, uh, the uh, the glacial maximum or ice caps expand <clears throat> excuse me um, once those kind of rise and you know rise and fall it would make uh, Taiwan easier to get to at different times um, you can tell that there are uh, there were uh, different types of megafauna that people were probably following to you know, to get there uh, but at 10,000 BC uh, uh, Taiwan is probably mostly made up of of the people that are more closely related to the peoples along the very southern tip of uh, Vietnam and Cambodia um, 
that's kind of the at least the assumption. I think the the earliest bones they found on Taiwan, uh, they did they did find a sampled for DNA there. Uh, and they were able to kind of see that it had a little bit more in common with peoples in that region than with um, the current day population of, say, China. Um, but of course, you know, you take that with a grain of salt. It was a very small sample, so it, it may not be entirely representative. Um, but at the very least, we know that the people uh, living there at this time frame. Um, they do eventually go, and Taiwan's kind of a jumping off point for a lot of the smaller um, islands uh, in uh, the Southeast Asia area. Um, they do definitely lend a sizable, if not all of their uh, descent to a lot of those groups. Uh, basically, Austronesians um, were probably the people living there at the time that we're discussing. Uh, and then eventually, um, and again, we'll get to it in future episodes, but eventually uh, agriculture and agriculturalists from China will probably enter the region uh, and they'll, you know, that'll create its kind of own culture uh, that is separate from both the mainland and from the other islands. But again, that's for future stuff. But at this time, um, they have the, they have a separate their tools are a lot different from what you'd see in mainland China and even in Southeast Asia. So they've probably been here for maybe 10,000 years or so developing their own um, their own tool making. Uh, and they probably have some type of uh, Austronesian, Proto-Austronesian language that they're speaking. Now, to go a little bit further north uh, and I guess to well, just north for Taiwan, but a little bit north and east from uh, what we were discussing, the Dong Cave in uh, China. We're going to go uh, up to the Korean Peninsula. But along the way, we do need to say, as you begin to move uh, north and east from the Dong Cave area, um, China becomes much more of a plain. Um, uh, and it becomes a little bit more of a grassland, uh, which eventually will become very good farmland. Uh, so that uh, that northern Chinese plain is very important. The people there are living a much more traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle than people in the south. There are rivers, there are sources of water, but uh, unless you're along the coast, I don't think you would have nearly as much options in terms of uh, fish or uh, water uh, food to kind of um, to um, uh, go for as opposed to uh, in the plains you're probably looking at uh, a little bit more um, herd animals uh, to, to kind of look at and then of course uh, to the northwest you're getting into uh, mountainous terrain uh, especially in the north very dry mountainous terrain which uh, you know, there you're you're looking at much less in terms of uh, even vegetation and um, uh, fishing. So there you're definitely going for uh, herd animals. Uh, so there is uh, just keep that in mind. And then of course, as you go north on the plain, again you run into even more mountains that kind of divide the steppe from 
China. Uh, and then as you turn east along that uh, the bays there and the coastline, uh, you are going to get into a kind of a mountain pass to the northeast. And that's going to take you to what is uh, today known as uh, the Liaodong Peninsula. And then from that point is kind of like one of your entries into what is the now the Korean Peninsula. Um, so basically you curve around that little uh, bay uh, and then you have another little bit of a plane uh, that turns into a step uh, and then that that plane is divided from Korea and the rest of the Mongol step by a uh, couple of different mountain ranges. Uh, in North Korea, of course, in the north, there are very, uh, very rough mountains and that's kind of allow Korea or the people living in Korea to kind of develop a separate culture from uh, the peoples of the steppe in China. Uh, in the north, it's a little bit more mountainous, but then you also have a plain along the western half of the Korean Peninsula, and that goes south, and it from there, um, you do have a little bit more mountains in the south, like that cover most of the peninsula as opposed to just the eastern half and the north, but between those mountainous areas, there are several different kind of low flatlands uh, that kind of, that, uh, that are of course today major settlement points in the south of China. So the people living there, they have been living uh, probably for about 40 to 50,000 years in Korea at this point, at least Homo sapiens. Uh, you know, I'm sure that there were, I think Homo erectus, they found some evidence of them being in the area. This is kind of as north as they went. Uh, but I think right now the oldest is about 40 to 50,000 years that they've been able to find. And in this area, there are, of course, uh, there have been remains of woolly rhinos, uh, cave bears, brown bears, uh, hyenas, and several different um, varieties of deer. And most of those are um, now extinct. Uh, you know, I'm sure humans contributed to bit to those factors but of course um, this is one of those things we talked about uh, quite a few episodes ago at this point where uh, you had that uh, mass megafauna die-off uh, and whether or not it was completely related to humans or if it was just just due to the climate changing uh, so the tools here are slightly different from um, the ones in China uh, they have in addition to stone you see a lot of antler or bone type items that are made. Uh, they have their own form of pottery uh, that uh, that is separate from the genre Dong Cave, or at least um, it's newer and it's evolved its kind of own style. It has a very wider brim at the top and then at the um, bottom. It's it's much more like a um, what you might consider an urn. It's very plain, it's very flat. There are no corded wear or um, like curved, like there's uh, the, the lip of the of the jar itself is, is very uh, thin. It's not like curved over on itself. It's not, it's not lip, it's, it's flat basically. But it is fairly large uh, for those, you know, for the size. 
Um, now, Koreans themselves, they use a similar three-age system to kind of go into, you know, Korean prehistory. Um, and this was done, I think, after World War II. So it's kind of done... They, they kind of use that as a way to kind of um, counteract the, you know, some of the Imperial Japanese um, claims that uh, Korea kind of did not have its own Bronze Age culture, whereas Japan did to kind of show that they were less, you know, a lesser people. Uh, spoiler, the Europeans did that to the Africans, um, which... You know, we'll get into that in future stuff, like why that happened. Um, but it should be noted that uh, at this point, there is a very high possibility um, that the Koreans, in addition to having pottery, um, the eight, uh, that could be a little bit later. It could be about 2,000 years from now. Although, again, um, I'm of the opinion that the stuff we have is not the first example. It's just, you know, the earliest we've found. And it's very possible that uh, that pottery had been in the region for much longer, considering how long it's been in China. Um, but this this kind of period is known as uh, the Jul, uh, Julmun period, uh, Julmun pottery period. Um, this comes in a couple of phases. At this point, um, I think it the if it's not yet there, you're kind of in the the proto Julman pottery period, and uh, the Koreans themselves will call the period immediately after this the incipient period. Um, I will say that the three age system is not the best to use in Korea. Um, because, again, they didn't have some of those uh, requirements to get bronze. Um, I don't think the Imperial Japanese claims were correct, but uh, I do think that, you know, I understand why they wanted to kind of differentiate their history from the way it was being told by the Imperial Japanese, um, but I don't know if the system they decided on is the best. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if you see more revision to that in the future. But um, Korea, basically because of this, they're going to be in what's known as the Neolithic, the, the New Stone Age. They're going to be in the New Stone Age for a lot longer than uh, some of the surrounding cultures, at least uh, when it comes to how they describe themselves. And because of that, you know, I think a lot of people, they do want to kind of, you know, respect the Korean wishes. Uh, and again, I can understand why. So uh, you will see other people, uh, especially Westerners, use these same terminologies. Even though, again, I think I think you're probably better off coming up with your own kind of dating system at that point. Uh, but again, the Koreans kind of wanted to separate themselves from the Imperial Japanese and also kind of put themselves on equal footings with uh, the Europeans and the West. So, take that what you will, and uh, of course, when we jump forward again to the timeline, you know, we'll come back here, we'll go more into depth into the uh, Julamun period, because uh, it's going to last for a while. At least, um, it's going to cover several episodes uh, of future Korea 
uh, or it's going to cover several episodes are going to be covered. Uh, ah, I've lost my sorry. Several future episodes on Korea are going to be focused on the Jula Moon pottery period. So there we go. Now, uh, speaking of Japan, or at least Japanese people, we are going to move on now to um, the uh, Japanese islands. Now, Japan, of course, and Korea were connected by a land bridge. If you go south to the Korean Peninsula, you can see that there are a few islands kind of between uh, Japan's southernmost large island, Kyushu. Uh, there's uh, there's uh, the largest of those islands is Jeju, I believe is how it's pronounced. And then, of course, another one uh, would be uh, Tsushima is another island kind of in those chains. Uh, so at one point, you know, Korea and Japan were connected. Uh, the people that, you know, came through Korea, or the people that lived in Japan came through Korea. Um, so they they were, you know, related at a very earlier period. Um, and in Japan, this is what is known as the incipient Jomon period. And this period actually lasts for probably like 2,000 years prior to this, so 12,000 BC, which is the end of the last glacial maximum or last glacial period. Uh, that's caused the sea levels to rise. So at that point, Japanese had been isolated from mainland Japan at this point. Or I'm sorry, mainland Japan has been isolated from mainland Asia, Korea at this point for about 2,000 years. Uh, I think um, it was still probably a little bit closer. It, it's probably not exactly the same sea levels as you see today. Uh, it probably was a little bit lower. So, you know, Jeju, uh, Kyushu, and the southern bit of Korea probably had a little bit more land than they do now, but that's here or there. So, uh, the incipient Jomon, you see this... Um, this is a very much hunter-gatherer society, but they do develop a bit of sedentaryism or sedentism. They have semi-permanent settlements much earlier than other hunter-gatherer cultures, at least that I can see. Uh, and you know, they were probably moving seasonally. Um, they had kind of pit dwellings. They kind of dug down, not you know super deep, but probably a few feet, and then they began to develop like roofing or coverings thatch uh, and then put it over these kind of areas uh, but these are you know this is very early eventually they're going to develop you know into a much more sedentary society uh, and they're going to kind of advance their housing technology <laughs> um, but yeah the early the early period you're definitely seeing uh, some uh, sedentary the incipient period you're seeing a little bit more sedentism now whether it's happening this early I don't know uh, I couldn't really find too many hard sources on this uh, but the Jomon period in Japan much like the Jel, uh, Jelumon pottery period uh, these are very long 
periods. Uh, we're talking thousands of years. Um, the incipient and the kind of the the incipient Jomo period is going to last for a while. Uh, we're I mean it's already it already has lasted for a while. Um, again, at least two thousand years, maybe even more than that, and it's going to continue to about five thousand BC. So um, just keep that in mind. Um, in terms of um, uh, nature on the island, so the the archipelago in the south is a much more uh, tropical, at least at this time. It's going to start to change. Um, in the south western part, you're going to have um, you're going to see more evergreen trees, uh, whereas uh, towards uh, the northeast, uh, and you're going to see um, more uh, deciduous trees, conifers, and things like that. Uh, but so, of course, that gives you things like um, uh, chestnuts, oaks, things like that. So there's going to be a lot of edible nuts. Uh, that's going to be a a very big part of the food source of the people living there. Uh, in terms of what you get by uh, gathering, uh, you also will have uh, wild boars. Um, and of course, that probably led to some type of uh, pig, um, probably not fully domesticated for quite a while, at least as far as I'm aware. Um, but uh, they do have a certain level of um, of management of wild hogs. Um, of course, hogs can become feral fairly quickly. That's something uh, everyone would have to deal with. So it's entirely possible that they have um, kind of domesticated pigs and lost them and got them back and we would have no way of possibly knowing that. Um, deer uh, are very important. Uh, this, uh, uh, there are still of course wild deer in Japan. Um, they also have tubers and different freshwater fish. Uh, of course fish is going to be very important especially in the, uh, the south of Japan at least in these early days and of course that will spread as time goes on. Um, but uh, the, the Jomon kind of covers a lot of the coastal regions. Uh, in the kind of the south, um, you'll see much more uh, coverage, but there are you know, locations all around the edges of Japanese coastline of what is today, today, the Japan today. There's basically coastline. Anywhere there's coastline there today, people living, there are probably evidence of at least Jomo passing through, even in Hokkaido, which is the northern island. Um, now, they only go to the south of Hokkaido. They don't go up towards um, uh, the more cold climes, which makes sense. Um, even even then, it's it was even in a more tropical environment, it was still extremely cold. Uh, in those locations. So you only see them go up to about uh, the southern tip of Hokkaido. Uh, so let's see where we are. Uh, the episode's been running about, ooh, good lord. Th wow, 30, 35 minutes. Okay, uh, I've got to do a little bit of editing here. Um, not a lot because. Um, yeah, this has been a really good episode. We've covered a lot of ground. 
next week we're going to kind of finish off uh, Asia. We're going to kind of go over some of the cultures along the steppe. Um, and then we'll cover back towards, uh, we'll go back towards the west, closer to Europe. We'll end up on the Eurasian steppe. Uh, I'm going to try to go ahead and finish off the rest of Asia next week. And then after that, we'll go to, um, yeah, let's go back. We'll go back to, uh, I think, Australia. Well, I'll need to check my sources. I've already started scripting both the Europe and the, the Australian episodes. I'll see how time is looking. But, um, yeah, I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Um, please provide me any feedback or any questions. You can reach me at waradrevpod at gmail.com, or you can reach me uh, at the Twitter feed. My DMs are open. Um, do you want to get a little bit more house cleaning? Uh, so, uh, we are, as of today, uh, it is August the 7th, uh, so uh, there are... Uh, let's see, there are three more Sundays in August. Um, I plan on doing episodes from, let's see, yeah, so the 14th, the 21st, 28th, those will be pretty standard. Uh, I will be doing one on the 4th. Um, there is a holiday in America on Monday the 5th, but I do plan on doing a standard um, episode. In fact, I will be doing standard episodes until the week of the 25th of September, I believe. Uh, that week, I am out of town. I have a vacation plan with some friends. In fact, that actually may be... Let me confirm. Yes, so... Okay, yes, so I have the 23rd. Yeah, so that will be that week of the 26th. There will not be an episode, most likely. I may try to record like a little supplemental episode in the meantime, but uh, definitely not one that week, and possibly not one the week after, depending on how my travel goes and, you know, if I'm able to uh, <laughs> uh, escape from any type of infections, from any kind of diseases. Uh, like uh, certain uh, COVIDs. So, um, yeah. But So we still have a few weeks before that. Um, I do kind of want to do something a little bit different for October. I'm trying to think of maybe doing like um, just kind of, uh, you know, fiction or fantasy kind of books. Um, I may do a report on Playing of the Cave Bear. I think that's the one I'm thinking of. But if anyone has any kind of like historical horror or possibly uh, fiction or fantasy that you'd kind of like me to take a look at for like a s October special. Um, I'll just do some supplemental episodes while I'm trying to, you know, get uh, research done for the next little section. Um, so, yeah, please give me any feedback. I very much appreciate it. Uh, so if you have any uh, desire to hear anything specific, please let me know. But yeah, thank you guys for listening, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Goodbye.